good morning and welcome to church. So great to see you all turned up with your Zoom screens on so I can see your faces. Uh, thank you for that. It's been an interesting few weeks, hasn't it? Uh, my name's Rowan, one of the pastors here, and if you're new, special welcome to Church in the Flesh. Great to have you along. Uh, there might be still people at home watching online, so great you can join us there as well. But it is a great week as we come to think through really what Christians actually believe and, and the choice that we all face. So why don't we pray together now and ask God to help us to see this picture clear and loud. Let's pray. Father, you know our hearts. You know what the last few months have been like. You know where we've been at. You know where we're at now. And we thank you so much that you still speak. That through your word and by your spirit, we, we get to hear who you are. We get to hear certainty and a picture of the future that is both true and amazing. So we pray today, as we think through the choice we all need to make, that you would help us to see clearly who Jesus is and to think through our own lives by your Spirit. You might show us where we need to put Jesus as our King. We pray this in his great name. Amen. David Foster Wallace says these words, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. They're the words of David Foster Wallace, who was a philosopher, a postmodern scholar of the English and creative writing. He's one of the most influential and innovative writers, Time magazine said, of the last 20 years. They placed one of his books in the top 100 books of the last century. An influential man. And his claim, and I think it's true, is that everyone lives for something. We have something or someone in our lives that we view as important, the most important. But psychologists tell us that as a rule, we're terrible at working out what that most important thing is. If I was to ask you, what's the most important thing in your life? It's like, uh, and we kind of struggle. A better way of working that out is to say, what could you not live without? If losing something would cause you to lose your significance or your value or the will to live, That's probably what you live for. It's where you find your significance. It's what we worship. Everyone worships something. Everyone places something as the most important thing in their life. However, the claim claim of the Bible is that to worship anything or anyone other than God is both foolish and eternally catastrophic. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at what Christians actually believe. And we saw this picture of creation, that, that there is a God, that, that God made the world and he made us to rule the world under him, that he is worthy of our worship. He is alone, our creator, the one who made you and me and the one who sustains you and me. He's the only one that deserves to be in that ultimate place in our lives. But then we saw that none of us worship God as we ought. Not fully. We, we live with our lives focused on other areas, maybe even ourselves, as little mini-gods. We put ourselves on the throne of our life, or we think about our career as the most important, our identity, our, our, our ideas perhaps, our family, our, our relationships. We decide how we will live, not how God says we ought to live. And we decide what we will live for. And in doing that, we place ourselves on the throne of our own lives. We reject the only one who is truly worthy of our worship. 
And that's why the world is so broken. That's why there's so much pain and sickness and death and evil in our world. Because people, people like you and me, cause suffering in the lives of others. We think we know how to run our lives better than God. Then we saw in the third part of what Christians actually believe, that God won't let that go on forever. Now, that reality has both a good side and a bad side, doesn't it? God will not let evil taste victory. Not in the end. He will judge the living and the dead. Justice will be delivered. How I long for justice, for rights to be wronged, for people who seemingly get away with it to to not, and, and to face the penalty they deserve, and for evils to be stopped. In a world mourning the tragic loss of George Floyd at the hands of those who are supposed to serve and protect, we long for justice, don't we? The whole world at the moment is crying out for justice. We long for things to be put right. Friends, justice will be delivered. A better justice than any justice department could deliver today. Better than any of us could do. God will judge And that is great news. Evil will not win. But the problem is God is just towards everyone, and that includes me and you. Includes us who've turned our backs on God, and therefore we all deserve what we've asked for. We don't want God in our lives. We don't want life, because he is the one who provides it. That we all deserve death and judgment and hell. Hebrews 9.27 says this, Man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. But then over the last two weeks, the news got a little brighter of what Christians actually believe. In fact, a lot brighter, because we get to see where justice and mercy meet. We get to see where God is both at the same time just and at the same time merciful and gracious, that he has given us his son. We saw that the amazing, undeserved solution to our problem in that Jesus faced the punishment for us. His death in our place. Death is what every person on the face of the earth deserves. You and me, we deserve death. We've rejected the God who gives life. Our situation is dire, but Jesus faced death for us. So Peter says, one of Jesus' closest followers in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ... Also suffered for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. That despite God's just and right anger toward you and me, Jesus died in our place. He took the punishment that we deserve. His death was sufficient to cover the sin of the whole world. Jesus offered what he had. Perfect relationship with God, forgiveness, life forever. And he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, we saw last week, showing us that Jesus is the king God promised would come back and rule the earth, to rule the universe, to be the judge and and put things right. Jesus has risen as a symbol and sign and a first fruit in the beginning to say, he is king, he is judge, and he is coming back again. What I want to show you today is that how you respond to this King Jesus What Christianity holds out is that how you approach Jesus, what you do with him will determine how he will respond with you when he comes back to judge the living and the dead. Failing to recognize who Jesus is and what he's done, failing to worship him as God, failing to 
live for him, failing to place him in that ultimate position on the throne of your life, will change everything in eternity. Will land us on our own two feet before God, deserving death and judgment and hell. David Foster Wallace got part of his view right. Let me read you the next part of the speech that he gave at this address. Remember, he's not a Christian. I'll just read it to you. He says, everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, the Four Noble Truths or some set of ethical principles, is pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Anything else you worship will eat you alive. He continues, if you worship money and things then they are where you tap real meaning in life and you'll never have enough. You'll never feel you've got enough. If you worship your body and beauty and and sexual allure, then you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing that you'll die, then you'll die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. If you worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid. You'll need even more and more power to just numb your own fear. If you worship your intellect... If that's what you live for, for being seen as smart, then you'll end up feeling stupid and a fraud and always on the verge of being found out for what you don't yet know. Incredibly profound words from a man who is grappling with the big questions of life. And so much of what he said here is true. The tragedy is, three years after David Foster Wallace spoke those words, he committed suicide. Whatever it was that he was living for ate him alive. He did not found the thing to worship because the things he was worshipping in life did not fulfill. They did not deliver. All the good things of this world, if you make them the ultimate thing, will eat you alive. Just ask the athlete who's injured for a season and and their lack of identity and purpose that comes from that. Because their sport is often their God. Or or the celebrity who finally makes it to the top and and in getting there feels even more empty than they did beforehand. We consistently turn good things into God. And they can't bear the weight. They were never meant to bear the weight. And when we boot God out of the driver's seat of our lives, our world crumbles. He made us. He made us to live under him and under his rule. His way is right and good and true. We remove him from that position and try to run our lives our way. It falls apart. Whether we're willing to admit it or not. That's what happens in society, isn't it? It's exactly what our society has done. And look at the mess we're in. There's good amongst it all, don't get me wrong. But the world is a mess and broken because of messy and broken people. Because of sinful people. People who have said no to God and yes to our own rule. People like you and me. Well, today I want to show you that there is a choice every single one of us has. A choice in how we respond to who this God is. A choice to determine who will be in the driver's seat of our lives. It's not a choice to work out if there is a God or not. Oh no, we all worship something as, as God and place something on the throne of our lives, all of us. For many of us, the truths of what Christians actually believe, they've been so familiar over the last few weeks. They become like, yes, I know this, yes, I know these things. And I don't know if you're anything like me, that sometimes I become callous about these truths. I miss how great they are and their effect on me. And 
who I am and what Jesus has done for me. For us today, as we look at this choice that we face, the question is this. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? We can claim he is our king. We can associate with people who place him as their their king. But is he actually the ruler over your life? Does he come first? Is he the one of ultimate worship in everything you do and say that you keep coming back to and serve? The one that defines who you are and how you live? Is he actually the ruler over every area of your life? Is Jesus your king? For others of us, we're coming in not as Christians, but grappling with these things that Christians actually believe, being confronted with a set of observations, historical observations about what's going on in the world around us and their claim on the entire universe. But the question is the same for you as well. Who are you living for? Who is your king? Is Jesus? Or are you happy to face the consequences of your rebellion on your own two feet before God? Let me say it positively. Have you accepted Jesus' death in your place and his resurrection that gives relationship with God now and life after death into the age to come? Have you accepted that gift Well, the way you answer that question comes down to two fundamental attitudes. In fact, they're they're more than attitudes. They're actions. The way you accept it are, are two actions. As Jesus steps onto the stage of world history, Mark records these words of Jesus. This is what he said, Mark 1, 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. See, when Jesus says in Mark 1 that the kingdom of God has come near, he's talking about himself. The promised king has come. The kingdom of God, God's reign over all has come near. He's saying, look at me. Do you see who I am? He is the king. He has come near. And so he says there are two ways to respond, two actions. To repent and to believe. Now, Jesus' own words. Repent and believe The good news. The good news that the king has come. The good news that he was dying in our place and rising again. The only right response to the the fact that Jesus is king is to repent and believe. But to be honest, those words sound like like so much religious jargon. I hate religious jargon. They make me want to yawn, repent and believe. Such a repent just feels like a religious-y word that I'm like, oh, what is that? What does it actually mean? But it's actually something that we do in lots of different circumstances all the time. To repent means to do, well, to turn, to get out of the driver's seat of our life and let the real king take his place. It literally means to stop going in one direction and to turn the other way and go the other. A couple of years ago, um, I'd just been with a friend to Israel doing a, a master's subject in the backgrounds of early Christianity uh, and archaeology. And we'd, we'd gone from Israel and flown into Greece uh, for a couple of nights before we then came back uh, to, to Auckland. And I remember flying into Greece. It was quite late, probably about 11.30 at night. Uh, and we, we decided to hire a car and drive into the city. Um, and that's, that's, we'd planned all that stuff. And we thought, yep, yeah, it'll be fine. And we're trying to navigate on an iPad without internet with maps that we'd kind of downloaded beforehand in Greece. 
Now, both my friend and I could read ancient Greek, but not modern Greek. <laughs> so I could kind of see some of the street signs. and like, oh, that's Thessalonica. Yay! And anyway, we kind of took the wrong exit about six times. I kid you not. And each time we took the wrong exit, we had to pay the toll. So my friend is there, and I'm passing money out. He's like, you got any more coins? We just kept going through this, giving them money. We're like, you guys, have some more. We love your roads. <laughs> anyway, we get to this part where we're like, okay, we just need to go into the city, and there's like this back road that kind of goes straight through, not on the motorways. So we decide we'll just get off and go on that. And so we turn off. We're driving along, the road gets a bit more twisty and even more twisty, and we, we find ourselves at the top of a mountain. We're like, this is not the center of Greece. And it's getting later and later, and there's all these people there parking. You know what I mean by parking, like late at night? If you don't know, ask your parents. I'll explain that to you later. But there's lots of people around in their cars. There's a few kind of hoons there, and uh, we get into the car park, and like, oh, this is not us. Anyway, we, we, <laughs> that's right. And we, we drive out. And we go back down this divided road, at which point we just come around the corner under the lookout here and we hear people yelling at us. We're like, man, Greeks are friendly. You know, like we're driving, like, hey, hey, yelling out. We couldn't really understand what it was. Like, oh, look at that. And they're yelling and calling really loudly. And then we kind of go around the corner on this divided road, realizing I'd turned on the wrong side of a divided road. And I was driving totally the wrong way, what would end up in this kind of freeway entry where cars were coming the other way. And I've pulled over and I'm like, I know what they were saying. Repent. <laughs> that's it. You know, we knew the Greek word for repent. And like, Maybe that's what they were calling out. What they meant was, turn around, you idiot. You're about to crash. That's what Jesus is saying. Stop going the direction you're going, trusting in yourself. Stop thinking that you're in control and that, that you are many gods and trust me, I am the king. Stop going this way and start trusting me. Turn back. That's what repent means. And when Jesus steps onto the stage of world history, it becomes spellbindingly clear to everyone around him that he is the king, that they are not in control. The things he does, walks on water, heals the sick, raises the dead, says he can forgive sins, says he will die and rise again, then does it, it becomes spellbindingly clear that he is the king and that there is no other. And the only response when you recognize that Jesus is the king is to turn and say, well, I am not the king, but he is. In Thessalonians 1, listen to the way Paul speaks of the way people reacted who'd seen Jesus, who'd heard the message. Thessalonians 1, chapter 1, uh, verse 8. For the word of the Lord rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place that your faith in God had gone out. Right? So they're Christians. Therefore, we don't need to say anything, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you, how you turned Repented, turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Paul writes to the Thessalonians who saw who Jesus was and says they turned from idols to God. They turned to God from idols. That's what true Christianity looks like. Not living for your own desires and dreams, but living for your God. Letting him call the shots. They turned to God. They repented. And their repentance, it actually means a change of mind that leads to action. As I drove down that road, I thought I was in control. And I was, <laughs> badly. As I drove down that wrong side of the road, I thought that I was doing everything right. I'm like, this looks good. This road is clear. It looks like the way back. And then some information came that made me change my mind about what was right. And I pulled over very quickly. 
My changed mind led to change actions. It's about a change of mind. Now, repentance isn't necessarily an emotional thing. Sometimes we think repentance means to grovel and be like, oh, woe is me in such a huge way. And it, and it may be that. It might be that you've worked out, you've, you've done something dumb or stupid, or you've seen what we've been like to God, and it has a massive emotional impact on us. You can make unemotional changes of mind, and you can make deeply emotional ones. You can have emotions before, during, or after repentance. There's nothing wrong with emotion. It's just not what repentance is. It's a change of mind that results in changed actions. Recognizing our sin and brokenness, the way we've hurt others and rejected God, can and should bring about deep emotions, regret, sorrow. But I often notice with myself that I'm often more emotional about the symptoms of my sinfulness and how they affect me than I am about my sinfulness itself toward the other person or even more toward God. The Thessalonians repented and they turned to God, away from idols. And when we hear that word idol, we often think of a little wooden statue. You might see at the local tie shop. There's that kind of statue there with the arm kind of pumping or some other thing that is there. There's little Or a Hindu temple. But an idol is anything or anyone that takes the place of God. Listen to Paul in Romans 1, verse 25. Romans 1, 25. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Paul here is amazed at the lunacy of people who've not recognized who God is, which was him and is us. Can you imagine walking out into the, a bright midday day where the sun is shining and pulling out your torch and thinking, look at my torch, I'm brighter than the sun. Turning a torch on, I'm like, whoa, I can wield this torch. And like, I've got the power of the sun in my hand and thinking, I am the light of this world. Can you imagine doing that? I mean, like, I am. And sometimes you see people do that in the way they live and the way they act. They think they've got it all sorted. We think we've got it all sorted. We think that with a, with a brightest star on earth or that we've got a really good view of our life or others. And you look at our torch and then look to the sun and be like, yeah, you win. When you recognize Jesus as king, then living for and placing the things he created and the things he's given us in the center of our lives and worshiping them instead of him is crazy. It's lunacy when you see the brightness of the sun. Now, the way to make Jesus your king is firstly to recognize that you're going the wrong way, worshiping created things rather than the creator. And like the Thessalonians, turn from idols to the true and living God. To repent. But the second thing Jesus tells us here is to believe. Now, when we hear that word belief, lots of people are like, ah, another religious jargon word. And kind of, it is in some ways. They think, that's right. This guy wants us to believe that Jesus was real. He wants us to check our brains at the door. That's what Christianity says. Walk in and just believe. You know, often I hear people say, you just got to have faith. George Michael comes in our head. Um, Sorry about that. (laughs) If it didn't, and now it is. You just got to have faith. You just got to believe. And, 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 you know, just even though there's no evidence, just, just trust and you'll have a really great life. Having, they think that having faith in something or someone is just completely blind. But the word faith or belief just means to trust or rely or depend. 
You would do yourself a great service if every time you heard the word faith or belief, you crossed it out and wrote trust, rely, depend. Go for it. I give you permission. Maybe if you're giving the church Bible back, hey, you could do it for us. I'm happy with that. But every time you see that word belief, if you think it means trust, to believe is to trust, to believe is to rely, to believe is to depend, because those words make you ask the question, trust what? Rely on what? You don't say, you just got to rely, man. <laughs> rely on what? You, know, you just got to depend. But you just got to have faith. Everyone's like, yeah, that's right. <laughs> faith in what? See, faith and belief They're not some special action reserved for the religious realm. We trust and rely and depend on things all the time. Today, you trusted my words in an email or on Facebook that we'd be here in church. And you turned up and my words were true. We're here. I'm glad that we could. You trusted whatever vehicle brought you here today would would bring you here. And whoever was driving it brought you here. Show your hand if you ever caught a bus in your life. Ever caught a bus. Okay, leave your hand up if you ever, if you, hands up, everyone, I didn't say why yet, you put them down, so you've caught a bus, all right, you can put your hand, uh, leave your hand up if you've ever checked if the bus driver was a real bus driver, hand up. So, there's people, okay, great, there's, there's like two or three people here that have relied and put their lives in the hand of a bus driver and checked for it, that's great, but most of us, we make decisions all the time to rely on things without huge amounts of evidence, uh, we trust that the bus with that little, just three or four numbers on the top of it means that it's going to go where we think it's going to go. And we get on and put our lives in the hand of the bus driver. Now, personally, I don't have much faith or belief in the public transport network. Sorry if you work for them. Uh, often they're not on time. Sometimes they break down. But let me tell you, it doesn't matter how much faith I have in the public transport network that will get me to my destination. My faith cannot get me to my destination. What will get me to my destination is the trustworthiness of the bus, the dependability of the bus and the bus driver. I don't get to my destination by faith. I get there by trusting the thing that will take me there. Kind of like the chairs you were all sitting on today. You're all trusting those chairs, relying on those chairs to hold you up from the ground. You're depending on them. If they were all suddenly to break, your faith's not going to hold you up. If you sat there, but I had faith in that chair. It's like, oh, I'm still sitting, unless you've got amazing kind of quads. You're like, yeah. <laughs> good on you, good work. See, what's holding you up now is, is not your faith. It is the chair. But your, if, in order to the effects of the chair to be working for you, you need to have faith in it. See, the, the chair could be trustworthy, like these ones down here. No one has faith in them. Don't know why you're not sitting in these chairs. Whatever reason, you've decided I'm not going to have faith in these chairs, just those ones. No, in order for the benefits of the chair to apply to us, we need to trust them. We need to rely on them. There's a great illustration of a man in the late 1800s, a famous tightrope walker. I love this story. I might have told it before. His name is Charles Blondin. If you haven't heard this, you enjoy it. If you have, enjoy it. Blondin was a tightrope walker who, who loved to show off his skills. Uh, he, he was the first person to tightrope walk across Niagara Falls. So we're talking high and big. And big crowds would come and he'd walk across and he'd do all sorts of crazy stuff. He'd push a wheelbarrow across. One time he took out um, like kind of like a burner and cooked an egg in the middle of this tightrope just because he can. If I could do it, I'd love to do that. Anyway, apparently at one time there's all these people gathered around and he's like, who thinks I can push a wheelbarrow across? 
Everyone goes, yeah, we think you can, Blondin. You're the best tightrope walker in the world. And so he gets the wheelbarrow and walks across Niagara Falls on a tightrope and back. And you're like, whoa, crazy. He goes, who thinks I can push a wheelbarrow full of bricks across? And everyone's like, we think you can. You know, this is awesome. They just want to watch him fall, maybe. Or if he does it, it's a win-win either way. And so they're like, yeah, we think you can. And he walks across with this wheelbarrow full of bricks. He goes, who thinks I can push a person across? And they're like, whoa, even better. You know? And they're like, yeah, we all think you can. And he says, who wants to come? <laughs> now, the story goes that his manager stepped forward. He was the only one. And said... I believe you can do it, and I'll trust and rely and depend on you taking me across Niagara Falls. And it's exactly what he did. And when he sat in that wheelbarrow, he sat very still. <laughs> and Blondin pushed him across Niagara Falls and back. Now, what saved the manager that day? <laughs> well, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't his work. But he had to trust Blondin's skill to get him across. He had to put his life in his hands. If he didn't trust him, if he tried to do it himself, or say, get lost, blonde, and I'll do this, it would not have ended well because he did not have the skill to walk across. The question when it comes to Jesus is, have you put your life in his hands? Do you trust his word about who he is? His death in your place so that when you come face to face with God on the day of judgment, your only hope is not what you have done, but what Jesus did. Oh, I deserve death and judgment and hell, but Jesus died in my place. He rose again, and I depend on him. I, I rely on him. Have you put this Jesus in his right position on the throne of your life and said, I trust you to drive life way better than me? As Paul wrote to the Romans, in Romans 5.1, he says this to the Christians. Therefore, since we've been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since you've trusted in what Jesus did, his death and resurrection, you've been declared righteous by trusting, not because you do it yourself, but because Jesus did it for you and your life is in his hands. By trusting and relying and depending on Jesus, we are declared right, not because of anything we do, not because we've been good people or kept good laws or um, given some money to some charities or have never killed anyone. We hear all these reasons why we think that we could be good enough for God, but it's got nothing to do with that. Only because of Jesus' perfect life and death in our place and resurrection. If Jesus is God and he's good, then trusting his way will be the best way for you to live your life every day. He doesn't promise it'll be easy, but what good thing ever is easy, really? Friends, the choice we all face, the choice everyone in this room faces right now and for the rest of our lives is who we will trust and rely and depend on. Ourselves to face God on the basis of our own works and actions? Or Jesus to face God on the basis of what he has done for us? John 3.36 says these words, Whoever believes the Son... Whoever trusts, relies, depends on the Son, has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Let me ask you today, which of these two ways are you living? Now, the most common response I get as people are grappling with these truths is, ah, oh, there's parts of my life that I'm living for Jesus and other parts that I'm not. I'm somewhere in the middle ground. 
You can't be in the middle ground. There's no halfway point. Blondin's manager couldn't say to him, you hold one side of the wheelbarrow and I'll hold the other and I'll balance with my leg and we'll kind of do it together. It doesn't work. You're either trusting him to get you across or you're doing it yourself. You're either either pushing a wheelbarrow of your own works towards judgment day or you're being carried by Jesus on the basis of his. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from C.S. Lewis. Help me see with clarity the choice that we're all offered and how important it is to trust this option. He says this, We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of the holiday of the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Let me ask you today, who... Are you worshipping? Who is in the position of the ultimate thing or one in your life that you live for? Are you settling for mud plies in a slum when what is on offer is eternal life and relationship with the true and living God? I want to be clear that at the end of all things, as we come to that judgment day, there will only be two lines, one to eternal life and the other to eternal destruction. And the only difference between the people in each of those lines is whether they've relied on Jesus or not. That's it. I want to encourage you today, come to Jesus. Trust Jesus. Put him in the center of your life. How do we do that? Well, we pray. We speak to him and say, sorry. Sorry for the way we've turned our backs on you. Thank you. For your death in my place, please help me to live with you as my king. So I'm going to pray that prayer now. And if you want to come to Jesus for the first time, then pray it too. Start a relationship with him. Trust him. If you have been a Christian, then remind yourself again, who is your king? And ask him to help you to live for him. Let's pray together. Father God, we are so sorry that we have not treated you as we ought. So we look at our natural inclination. We always want to live our way without you. Please forgive us for turning our backs on you and removing you from the position of ruler over our lives. Thank you so much for your death on the cross. Thank you that Jesus died in our place, that he rose again, and we have that certainty of life, that he took the penalty that we deserve. Amaze us by that truth day after day after day. And please help us to live with Jesus our King. Show us areas of our lives that we've started to worship other things. Will that be our identity, our family, relationships? Will that be ideas or our own career or finances? Whatever those areas are, show us, Lord, that we might put Jesus at the center. We pray this in his great name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful, and if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.